Would you turn with me this morning? And this morning I will read the portion that I meant to read last Sunday, but just didn't get to it. I won't get to it today either, but I'd like to read it to you. Uh, because there's a lot to be said that I can get you to the second death, you see. Uh, there are no more terrible words in all language or in all scripture than those three words, the second death. Last week I started to speak to you about uh, the events leading up to this most terrible, terrible assize or judgment of God, the second death. It's found at the end of the book of Revelation. And the second death is only mentioned really uh, as in that exact terminology in the book of Revelation. Four times it's mentioned in the book of Revelation, the second death. It is inferred in Jude when it talks of those who are twice dead. And I suppose uh, Jesus refers to it very clearly in John 5.29 when he says that there it will be a resurrection of life and a resurrection of damnation. Some people have an idea that uh, the only thing mentioned by Jesus is a resurrection of life, but uh, in John 5.29, he makes sure we understand that there is a resurrection of life and a resurrection of damnation. And the resurrection of damnation is the second death. I will speak of it later. It comes in at the very end of the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ upon earth. And it is that terrible moment when all of the lost dead are brought up before him. Let me just read it to you quickly, and then I am going to go back to the uh, point at which I left off last week, and then slowly bring you up to the second death. It's an amazing thing. As I was looking in my Bible, I realized to, uh, during this week, that on the two pages that I'm reading in my Bible, the way my Bible happens to be set up, not yours necessarily, you might have to turn a leaf, but on the two pages in which I am reading, it covers the end of the Great Tribulation, the thousand-year reign of Christ, and the judgment of the world, world and the second death, all covered on just two pages. You know, you, this vast history of man, Boy, when you realize all the history books have been written by men in the nations that crowd the shelves of libraries, you know, and you see how God gathers it all up on two pages and settles the whole thing that men have no idea about in all of their history books. You can read the history of man, but this is the history of man, you see. You may read the history of man, but uh, this is the only true history of man. Because this tells where man will end up. Now I'm reading from Revelation, the 20th chapter, and I'm reading just the 11th to the 15th verses. 
which will speak of the second death, then I'm going back, which I said is within two pages of Scripture here, and then bring you up slowly to this second death of which he speaks here. This is the great white throne judgment. Now, of course, the average person that you would meet in the street, if they were to... I'll get to it. Don't be afraid this time. I'm really going to get to that. But the average person that you would meet on the street and you were to talk to them about, let's assume they believe there's a God. If you were to talk to them about, tell me what you think about the final judgment of God, they would throw it all into one big thing and say, well, a day is going to come when God is going to judge all people. And you say, where? Well, I guess at his throne or something, he will judge all the people at one time. Of course, this is as far from the truth as it can be. And anybody who says that indicates a complete ignorance of what God has to say. This judgment now we're speaking about is the great white throne judgment. The church of Jesus Christ has already been 1,007 years with their Savior. Isn't that great? They were redeemed before the great tribulation that came for a seven-year period, which we see all heading up now in the battle of Armageddon, and then they were with him for the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. And all these dead weren't raised. They're still there. The lost aren't raised at all until this point, you see, the second death. Notice, this is the great white throne judgment now that we're speaking of. I'll speak about the leading up to it and what has happened with the church in the meantime. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. You know, I'd love to stop every sentence here because there's so much to be said, I tell you. It's, it's thrilling. You know, I've been reading about this moon. It's great, isn't it? Huh? You know, I'm thrilled about our nation, aren't you? Huh? You've got a lot of thankfulness. Listen, don't forget to thank God for our country. Huh? I'm still the happiest man in the world I live here, let me tell you. But I'm thrilled with the, with the, the astronauts in this great adventure. I, I was reading, you know, where it said, uh, we really don't really taste of it like uh, this Conrad. You notice how how he was, just, just sort of laughing with joy as he looked around and saw and realized he's standing on the moon. And that night, I, I remember looking up, you know, and, and seeing the moon and to think men are up there, you know, walking on the moon. But some of the things strike me as, 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 as tremendous. I, I, I have two articles. One was written in October after the first moon thing, or back a ways. And this one that just was written yesterday, see. And I read the scientist report on the October thing. And then the scientist report on this one. And you know what the biggest scientist said in the article I read yesterday? After what happened on the moon this time, when they dropped back the jet portion that had jetted them off from the moon to plunge into the moon at so many thousand miles an hour, and that when it hit the moon, 
They expected the vibration, like the ripple of a pebble in the water, to last for a minute and a half to two minutes. The vibrations lasted for a half hour. And the scientist says, we might as well throw all the books away. We don't know anything. He says, we thought it had a molten core. He said, there's an indication here. He said, an amazing thing we found, that the rock that we took from the moon and the rock that we take from Earth is exactly 4,600,000,000 years old. How can this be? We might as well start over. That's what he said, see? And you know, and I think to myself, isn't this tremendous to us, you know? It shows that, uh, you know, he had a hero, like, uh, from the time I was a boy, which was a short time ago. But from the time I was a boy and I was in school, and what I studied in those days, and many of the theories they had, have all been tossed out the window. So that our young people today, you know, it used to be one thing where a father had some knowledge about the things his sons and daughters were studying. But today, I have to be frank, your young people can come to you and say, I want to ask you about the, uh, you know, this uh, nuclear uh, fading away, Dad, and the carbon theory. And you look at me, what are you talking about, carbon theory? The age of the earth and all this. I mean, it's a different age entirely. But the phrase that thrilled me was this big scientist saying, we might as well throw the books away concerning much that we thought about the moon and about the great galaxies. And I couldn't help but think how blessed it is in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Isn't that wonderful? They've had their variations. They throw out this theory, then they get a new one. This is a month ago. They said, now we're pretty sure the sun, the moon had this and this and this. And now they say, we're not so sure the moon had this and this and this. One month later, see? But here we are in that glorious position. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right, let me get back. The, the thing that made me think of this here is, and before whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. Well, it's going to be a little hard for the scientists to grasp that one, boy. You know, and say, well, gravity's going to hold that whole thing together. How's that going to happen? Well, I don't think God will have any problem here. He made it all. I don't think he'll have any problem. I'm going to speak about that another time. There was found no place for them. Imagine. And I saw the dead, the small and the great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. Quickly, just to mention here, Death and hell. Death, the resident of the body. Hell, Hades, the resident of the soul. This is the lost dead now. The grave takes both the Christian and the lost similarly, unless Christ comes. We shall all be placed in the same kind of a coffin. 
The only difference between the lost and the saved is the saved are absent from the body, present with the Lord, and the dead are absent from the body in Hades. And here it says death, the grave, and Hades, or hell. It's a poor translation. The word hell, Hades, were, notice that, delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written, notice, in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So just in passing, let me say, all the world not raised at the rapture of the church when we shall be caught up before the great tribulation on earth where Jacob's trouble comes in to play, where Daniel speaks of the abomination of desolation, where we find that Israel comes into the great tribulation. Israel is going to go through a terrible trying time there's seven years, the last three and a half, filled with the judgments of God upon the earth, upon his people, and upon those who are left behind. If for no other reason, I'd be crying out to God, Lord, in this day we ought to be out working for the Savior to see if we can get people into the body of Christ, redeemed in the blood, that they might escape the wrath which is to come, unspeakable wrath upon the face of this earth. But out of this seven years, God is going to bring forth Israel to rule upon the face of the earth. That earth which God gave to him, he, they are his earthly people, and they will be on the earth, those whom God preserves. And then there'll be a thousand-year reign of Christ as he occupies the throne of David. And that will happen upon this very earth that we see. It will be restored to its pristine beauty. But that's not the final thing. The second death comes at the end of the thousand years and heaven and earth flee away and there's found no place for them. But though there's no heaven and earth, earth is gone, the dead stand before God. So many people think the earth is so stable that they can own a portion of it, of a possession of it. But God says it's all going to be gone. Heaven and earth shall be rolled up like a scroll, he says. And so, beloved, you and I, have already been redeemed, if you know Christ as your personal Savior, for a thousand and seven years before, before the great tribulation it comes, caught up together to meet the Lord in the clouds in the air. And then, as I said last week, you stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And this is the place where I left you off last week as I work up to the second death because there's much I want to say about that portion there. As we work up, I had spoken to you last week about the judgment seat of Christ. The church has been raptured up. First Thessalonians 4. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the clouds in the air, and then shall we ever be with the Lord. This is the great joy of the church. This is the great joy of our hearts this morning, to know that Christ is going to take us out before the great tribulation begins upon the face of the earth. Israel in the proper position. The Arabs in the proper position. 
rusher in the proper position. It strikes me. Yesterday I was reading books 100 years old, written by theologians of 100 years ago, and to read as they read there and wrote down. And they said, the day will come when Russia shall be in the powers of the Northern Confederacy, and the kings of the East China shall march as the hordes of Genghis Khan, and their spoil will be Israel. And of course, this is in Ezekiel 36 to the 40th chapter, that the powers, and it says, Meshech and Tobolsk shall march upon Israel to take a spoil unto themselves. The gold, the riches, all in the black gold of oil and all of the tremendous mineral deposits of the Dead Sea, a spoil so great that the scientists of the earth tell us that in the Dead Sea there's over a trillion dollars in minerals, and that the nations of the earth, but especially the powers of the Northern Confederacy and China, the spoil shall be Israel. I'll discuss that at another time but that shall be the spoil. And in the meantime, that conflict that will be going on upon the face of the earth in great tribulation, the church will have been already taken out and be with their Lord in the pavilions of heaven. And the judgment seat of Christ shall be first to answer for the deeds done in the body. 2 Corinthians 5.10 we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to answer for the deeds done in the body, whether they be good or bad. This is not the great white throne, you see. This is the judgment seat of Christ. This is that where believers are going to be judged for what they've done with their salvation since they're saved. Therefore, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God before ordained that we should walk in them. And so there's going to be the judgment seat of Christ. This is what's going on in heaven. The judgment seat of Christ. And on earth, the great tribulation. I believe that the judgment seat of Christ will probably take a part of that period of seven years. I don't know precisely how long. But I do know that after the judgment seat... After we have received for the deeds done in the body. And beloved, I want to convince you here, this is so, so important, that we understand that that judgment seat has great importance to the Christian. Because you're going to be judged at that judgment seat for every motive of your life, not what you did. Your motives behind what you did. You're going to be judged for the secrets of your heart that were not confessed to God. Secret sin. Every motive of our lives will be totally exposed by God. I don't believe that it's going to be anything but between you and the Savior at this point. That this judgment is going to be personal when he judges the motives of your life. The secret thoughts. The reasons why you did things. I believe he's going to expose it to ourselves. God help us to know ourselves. God do this for us. Help you to know yourself for what you are. Don't gloss over the surface. Look at yourself as a mother or a father or a young person. Really look at yourself. 
Not that person that everybody sees, but the person you really are. Because that's what God is going to judge. If there's any place your hair will ever be let down, it's at the judgment seat of Christ. I hear about people letting their hair down. I don't believe there's been a human being that's ever really let their hair down and said everything about themselves. Or known to their own knowledge have really exposed themselves to God and let the Holy Spirit shine through and dig out all of those things where the motives are wrong, where the yearnings are wrong, where they've been hiding things from the church of Christ, where they've been living in the church of Christ, where they've been part of the church of Jesus Christ and have not been living the life and the whole body of Christ has been suffering while they've been sitting in the congregation and living in secret sin. The whole church has suffered because if one member suffers, the whole body suffers. If one member sins, as they can in the camp, the whole camp suffers. And so there's going to be a great judgment, a greater size, just for the church before the great tribulation. And I believe this will probably take that, that if I might say, in that seven-year period of, of the last week of Daniel, of the great tribulation, it might take in the first few years, the first three years or so, the judgment seat of Christ. And memory won't get away with it. I would remind you that since you were saved, beloved, oh, this is so important. Remember the books it says here where they were judged the dead out of the works in the second death? They were judged out of the books for what they'd done. May I remind you, there is a book of life and there's a record of every single thing you've done since you were saved. And I remind you, that the only thing will keep things out of that book that judges you since you were saved is confession of your sin. The minute you confess your sin, if you've sinned, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And your sins he will remember no more. But at the judgment seat of Christ, if you're a son of God and you've been redeemed in his blood and you died with Christ and there's some sin in your life that you've never confessed, at the judgment seat, it will be judged not as sin, but as a deed. For we shall appear before the judgment seat of Christ to answer for what? Sin, Lord? No. To answer for the deeds done in the body. Whether they be what? Sinful, Lord? No. Whether they be good or bad. That's the judgment seat of Christ. And so, the record of the books for the lost is for dead people. They've already determined their destiny, the second death. But the record, beloved, for the redeemed is another one. And God says you're going to be judged for every motive. Not what the church saw of you on Sunday. Not for the way you looked. Oh, may I shake you! I'm afraid we are in such an inert stage and that Satan has so blinded and duped the church that he has made it so that souls cannot see themselves. He covers it over. He glosses it over. He makes us think, well, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Pastor Gian speaks of it, but don't be concerned. I would remind you he did the same thing with Eve. 
I would remind you this was his very motive with Eve. He said, surely God hath not said, thou shalt surely die. You can sit in my congregation and you can hear Pastor Gian speak and you can say, surely God hath not said I shall be judged for my inert condition, for my poor spirituality, for my relationship to my children as a mother, for my relationship to my husband or my wife as a father, as a wife or a husband, I shall not be judged. You shall be judged. You are redeemed in the blood of Christ and God calls upon you as a child to be different than anybody else in all this universe. And your marriage shall be judged, and your relationship to your children shall be judged, and every single area shall be judged, and your relationship to people in the world, and the sins that you never confessed and never really forsook. You thought you were playing with God. But you can't play with God. And I want to tell you that the chastening of God, nothing can be worse or more serious. You may wonder sometimes, you know, when I, when I say I put Jesus Christ on the top, I know that the hardest place sometimes for a man to even let himself be touched is in the physical things of life. And so that was the thought of my heart when I was redeemed. Put Jesus Christ's name on the top, otherwise you'll never get there. I remember reading about Abraham, how when he had gone out and whatever he did, off the top came that which was to God. Oh, the judgments of God upon every area of our lives. How can I place this before you? The enigmas of life will be explained to you when you, when you get to the judgment seat of Christ. You've been puzzled about things? You've wondered why... Certain things happened in your life? I never will question why God took my son. If God had not taken my son, I would not be here. I would not have had the privilege of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. My son shall be surrounded by a myriad of souls that his father had the privilege of leading to Jesus. Could I ask for any more? Are you puzzled by the things that happen to you? Does this concern you? Are you not called upon then, no matter what happens to you, to bear a good testimony for Jesus Christ? For those that shine to the congregation, those going under great trial who show dynamic strength. Have you not looked at them? Have you not said, look at so-and-so, her husband, his wife, his son, his daughter's dying. But did you see the radiance about them? What does this do for the congregation of God, you see? All the enigmas of life will be explained to you. You're troubled, you're puzzled. You're wondering, why did it have to happen to me? Why? Don't you think Ralph Montanus is going through that right now? Huh? To lose his own son? Glorious musician. You can get his recordings. And to have him this week found dead in his car. Ralph Jr.? 
Don't you think that one day Ralph was probably saying in his heart, Lord, I don't know why. I don't know why. But I know, Lord, all things work together for good to them that love God. You know, people sometimes said, how about your son? How do you reconcile yourself to a little boy of five getting cancer and be taken home? I said, I've never sought to. All I know is out of that, God made me a preacher and he may have saved my son Martin from a death on a battlefield. He'd been right over there in Vietnam. I don't know. But I know I can leave it with God. He'll explain every enigma of life. You puzzled? Don't be puzzled. Say, Lord, you're going to tell me someday. I don't understand, Lord, why I, I thought I was doing that which was right with my son, with my daughter. But at that judgment seat, when God explains everything, may I say that? That's going to be the greatest size for the church. He's not going to talk to you later about these things that have puzzled your heart. That's all going to be settled because the next step is the marriage supper of the Lamb. But he's got to get this settled first. Aren't you glad that there's a judgment seat of Christ? I'm so glad. I wouldn't want to get to glory and have memory of a lot of things I did since I'm a Christian that would plague me for eternity. God's going to open the books wide when he talks to you personally and say, now I want to get you straightened out on this. We'll get it all cleared up. Now, I remember your motive when you did this. And I remember that. And he brings to our memory every little thing. Why? So that when we come to the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is the next step, which happens in that seven-year period while we're in heaven, and all hell is broken loose on earth, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Wonderful. But he wants to go over everything with us. He's not going to only talk to us about the good and the bad and the things we've done, but he's going to talk to us in this great, wonderful judgment seat of Christ. He's going to allow you to have settled the puzzles of life. Oh, don't get upset. Don't get upset with God. You're going through some trial. Remember, Peter says that, that the trying of your faith may be like fire, that it may come out pure gold on the other end. You see? You only get the real faith, you know, when you've gone through fire. How do you get the pure metal? Only when it's gone through the fires and all the dross is burned away. That's how you get pure gold. You get all the dross out. Beloved, we're to realize that on this earth our trial of our faith may be as it is by fire. But God has a reason for it. And the reason is that he wants to get the kind of a Christian. He doesn't want someone who's always complaining. He wants someone who's rejoicing in the Lord and is thankful in all things. That's the big thing, isn't it, huh? Make our thanksgivings known unto God. Be thankful in all things. Making your requests known unto God, and God will answer you. And so, beloved, there's to be that understanding that he's going to settle many of these things in our lives. The unsolved problems will be cleared up. You know those verses of Scripture that you didn't quite fathom and understand, huh? Do you let that get you down? I don't let it get me down. 
I got a thousand to tell me what I want to know. Here and there you hit some Old Testament portion or some New Testament portion. And they say, yeah, but here's one verse that says so-and-so. You say, yeah, but here's a thousand say so-and-so. Your interpretation of the one verse must be wrong. If a thousand say positively, this is the way it is, then don't worry about the one verse. doesn't bother me in the least. We're going to have solved all of those things that seem to be unsolvable. And all the mistakes and all of the misunderstandings of life will be rectified between husbands and wives and being their children and the parents and all of these misunderstandings and the mistakes you made. And boy, we've all made them. We've all made them. I've made them. You've made them. We've all made mistakes. But one day when we see Christ at that judgment seat, all these things will be answered. Oh, Lord, how thankful I am. When I go to the marriage supper of the Lamb, there's not going to be one thing that's left uncovered. Lord, get it all off your heart and mine. You know, he's a great, great, great Savior, isn't he? Huh? It was a necessary thing that he have a judgment seat for believers. Because, you know what he says about believers? You're all unprofitable servants. Well, if we're unprofitable, he's going to have to get rid of all these things. So when I go into glory for eternity, after the judgment seat and to the marriage supper of the Lamb, and when I sit down and he's the bridegroom and I'm part of the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, member of his body, of his flesh and of his bones, everything will have gone. I don't have to worry about saying to him at a later date, but Lord, there's one thing that's rankling my mind. I wasn't faithful back in about 1969. And you came in 1970. Wouldn't that be something, huh? He's going to clear it all up. Clear it all up and get it out of the way. I'm just going to close with reading a portion and now I'll discuss this with you next week, but it's wonderful. 13th verse of... of uh, Let's see now. I shouldn't say the 13th verse, the 5th verse of, of Revelation 19. And I'll be discussing this with you. The judgment seat of Christ is past. He's answered the enigmas. He's settled the problems. He's settled your good and the bad things, especially those bad things that happened in your life that shouldn't have as a Christian. Everybody has this. There are things that happen in Christian lives that never should happen. But there's forgiveness. There's forgiveness. It's all cleared up at that great judgment seat of Jesus Christ. And then, now notice now, this is the next step. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants and ye that fear him, both small and great. Now notice in that next chapter when it talks about the second death, it says the small and the great were brought up before God, but this is the small and the great who were redeemed. And he says here, and I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife 
hath made herself ready. Well, where did you think she made herself ready? She made herself ready at the judgment seat. That's why you have a judgment seat of Christ. That's where the bride makes herself ready. She already on earth, that has passed now, and the judgment seat of Christ has happened. And you've answered, or tried to answer, for the deeds done in the body. As I said to you, Hebrews 13 makes very clear that I, as your pastor, if you're here and we're caught up today, I would stand there because it says, for the pastor must be he who will give account for your soul to God for what he knows. That's all. But after that has been taken care of, the bride has made herself ready. All cleared up. Be terrible. You know, I, I've thought of it in the marriage. Of course, you know, marriage is the glorious picture of Christ and his church. And I've thought of this. And, you know, it's a terrible thing for a bride to come to the altar if there's sin on her heart. And while she stands there and she's being joined together with this man, or if it's in his heart, and somehow it's there, and there's a, there's a, there's a gap there. It's not been cleared away. Well, that's the way with Jesus. He, he has the judgment seat, so he gets it all cleared up. Everything cleared away. All clear now. Conscience clear. Fine. And then the marriage of the Lamb. How blessed. Isn't it wonderful how he does it? He gets it all cleared up, see? He doesn't leave any puzzles, any, anything undone. He wants that all cleared so that you'll enjoy it to the fullest at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Notice that. And to her was granted. Notice now, it's a gift. It's granted from him. To her was granted that she be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. And the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he said to me, Right blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith to me, These are the true sayings of God. Anybody getting married? Yeah, there's a few of you getting married this year. May I say this? When a girl is getting married, she wants to have the prettiest, the nicest, the widest, the most lovely wedding garment, pure and white. But notice here how blessed it is. She goes out and buys it. It could cover a multitude of sins. But you notice what it is here? And Jesus granted the bridegroom gives as a gift the beautiful, pure white linen, which is the righteousness of the saint. Isn't that blessed? The gift of God, you see, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's his gift. And the gift of righteousness. He hath made Christ to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so his own bride, he grants to be clothed in the pure white linen of righteousness, which is the righteousness of the saints. Isn't that blessed? Isn't that wonderful? Lord, you're so good to us. The judgment seat, 
It may be a heartache for us. There may be many tears there for some because that's the last time tears shall be shed when we see Christ at the judgment seat. After that, there'll be no more tears because it tells us that it will be all gone. No more crying, no more tears. But at the judgment seat, when he speaks to us about our lives, oh, Father, how we pray this morning, may our lives really shine for Jesus Christ, that then when we receive from his hand that glorious privilege of being his bride, his wife, the marriage of the Lamb has come with a bride now, but the marriage is coming. And at that time, he's going to clothe us upon with a pure white linen, which is the righteousness of the saints. And it's his gift to us. It's a bridegroom crying for his bride through his own blood, the righteousness which he gives to us. Praise his holy name. Are you redeemed this morning? Oh, beloved, that judgment seat, I'd like to stand beside you. I really would, honestly. As far as I can see, and I say this quickly, I see time has flown, but I say this quickly, as far as I can see, nobody's going to stand beside me but the Savior. Did you ever think of that? says, the pastor is he that must give account of your souls to God. You know who's going to give account of my soul? Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ and him alone. So I have one who's going to give account of my soul, and I pray that that's right. And then I pray that as I stand there with you, the joy of my heart will be since God has called upon me in Hebrews 13. They are those that must give account of your souls to God. That, oh, that accounting will be a good one. Help me, beloved, will you help me? Because I can't be dishonest. No one can ever be dishonest at the judgment seat. Imagine. The minute you might say a word, you'd say, wait a minute. What did you say? Why? He knows your heart. He knows your heart. Let us pray. Now, Father... We thank thee for thy precious word. Bless it to our hearts, Lord. Oh, there's so much, so much. Here we're living in that day when we're really waiting for Christ as no other age ever has. The world is such a little place. Suddenly we've begun to explore the heavens. This should even indicate to us that the day is close. Just the fact that we're getting off the earth Lord, we're so thankful that you've given us your word so we can understand. And we pray for everyone here this morning, Lord, at that judgment seat and then at the marriage supper, which there'll be more to say about. Oh, what a blessed and glorious moment for the church of Christ. Can we conceive of it, Christ the bridegroom and we the bride? Oh, Lord, help our hearts to understand, and then to live as the bride of Christ. Lord, you have to do a great work to make a soul understand that. I am the bride of Christ. I'm part of him, parcel, every parcel of me, body and soul. You're members of my body, he says, of my flesh and of my bones, because you've been made one with me, with the Father, through the Holy Spirit. 
Now, Father, touch us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.